0: Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays at voxoc.com slash live and at the Eldorado Performing Arts Center. Hey, how are you? Did I scare you? <laughs> Good morning, people. How are you guys? Good to be with you. Isn't this set something? Izzy was saying, yeah, like, uh, just feel at home. If you guys want something from the fridge, just come on up here and get it. Happy to serve you that way. Uh, yeah, welcome home. Uh, so welcome to Vox. Uh, if it's your first time or if you've been with us for a little bit, let me just kind of introduce myself and a little bit about the community. My name is Ronnie. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. Um, we have a, a team of people who teach. You'll hear a little bit more about that. Uh, but for us, when we gather, really the focal point of why we gather is together gather around the Eucharist. Uh, this idea came uh, from a collective idea about how the church should gather and what unites us all together. It was to come from different backgrounds and, and differences in thinking, the Eucharist is the thing that levels the playing field. It brings us all to one place and says that we're all here at the table with Jesus. We all have access to it. Um, And so we practice open communion. You don't have to do anything to to be able to receive communion. There's not some class that you have to take after service for three weeks uh, to grant you permission that you get to do it. it. Um, And the only stipulation for communion would be that if you think that you deserve it, then you probably shouldn't take it. Um, But this is a chance for us to gather together around that common experience. Um, Second Thing, and here's some of the stuff about us is that uh, we want to invite you into this journey that we've been on to do uh, church a little bit differently, um, to think a little bit differently. And so you'll notice that in worship, there isn't any sort of coercion. We're not going to tell you how to worship it. Whatever tradition you come from, feel free to express that here. Um, if you are a stand and raise your hand and sing kind of person, do it. If you're a sit and you want to sit, then do that too. There's no uh, coercion for anything. Uh, we just want to simply invite you into that. And then lastly, about our teaching, we have a Team of teachers who think differently, who have different theological backgrounds and ideas. And we actually see that as value to us, that it makes us better, that we don't get locked into our own confirmational bias, and that we don't, you know, become a groupthink, that we can actually think outside of the box. We want to value your intellect and your ability to see things with nuance. And so that's what you'll experience as you come to Vox and as you participate in this community a little bit longer. Uh, a couple things. Um, we have some questions that come in. This is another part of uh, our community is that we ask questions because because we think that any honest journey probably begins with asking some deep questions. And uh, for us, we don't have answers. So we don't call it Q&A. We call it Q&R, which is our response. So we will we'll try to give our best response to the questions that you have, um, hoping that you can uh, have some, maybe some more insight, and then you can navigate those things on your own. So uh, today's message actually is born out of some of these uh, these questions that are going to help shape sort of the conversation this morning. So Uh, This first question says, praise hands galore for the return of Tim today and his most interesting, relatable, and important message. This is from last weekend. Tim Uelhoff was here. If you missed it, um, you can go onto the podcast and you can listen to that. I was raised with the understanding of spiritual warfare and came from a house who was no stranger to the topic of casting out demons. Very scary for a child. Yes. Uh, But as an adult, now it's hard to navigate what's true and what's not certainly yes the devil and his stronghold is quite real and quite prevalent to an american church who mostly turn a blind eye anyway thanks for not shying away from such topics Uh, um, uh, there was not really a question per se, I guess, in it. Um, Maybe just a little bit of a response to that. Um, This is a tough one for me because I don't quite know how to map spiritual warfare onto my personal life and my social construct. Um, I know that spiritual warfare is a thing that is talked about in Scripture. I believe it's real. I, for one, don't know how to process that. And that's just me being honest with you. I'm not gonna give you some pat answer and sort of kind of come up with something because I feel like I need to give you an answer. I, f- I feel like I can just be honest and tell you, I don't know. I don't know how to deal with sp- spiritual warfare. Um, I'm not the guy who believes the devil's around every corner. Um, I don't think that he's like, when I get a flat tire or my car breaks down, like Satan was like, ha ha, gotcha. Like, that's not that's not me. Um, so I would say I'm probably less sensitive to that some some of that stuff. And so I, I personally have a hard time. And so for, for that, you probably won't hear me teach a lot about spiritual Spiritual warfare. Now, Tim, on the other hand, has some different experiences with that, and, and so that's certainly okay. And again, that kind of speaks to um, our teaching uh, staff, that we we just want to hold all of that loosely and say, like, there's different opinions, there's different thoughts and experiences on both sides, that it's not one way. Um, and so to that, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to answer some of those questions about spiritual warfare. I believe that they're there. I believe it's real. I don't know how to map it onto my context. So I'm probably not the best person to ask that question to. All right, next one. Next one. <clears throat> Uh, Tim refers back to many theologians in his sermon about spiritual battle. How do we assess the value or accuracy of a theologian? Another great question. Um, And this, again, comes back to sort of how we hold um, our journey and our faith as a community. Uh, The first thing is, uh, I guess, Theologians, there's lots of different theologians, and and when you look at different um, doctrinal issues throughout scripture, um, you will find very intelligent, very bright, Jesus-loving people who feel very differently about different topics. So... If we narrow down these things to who's right and who's wrong, who's in or who's out, it really misses sort of the nuance behind what's actually being said. And so for that reason, um, we just kind of hold it all loosely. Again, I'm saying this, and I know this is maybe scary for some people who grew up in a tradition about you know being very right and having everything centered and, and everything needs to be put in place. And I know that um, that's something that makes us feel safe. But you know, the truth is, is how do you answer something when you've got both people on both sides who love Jesus and think differently about something? Um, that's hard. So when it comes to how do we know what a theologian says, and how do we know what's right, and how do we test the validity? I think a little bit is that is just going okay. What do I as I navigate these thoughts in my head? What do I feel, or what do I? What am I drawn to? And and what sort of uh, exercises are you putting into um, investigating those questions is an important part of it, right? Um, So uh, for that question, you know, there's consensus in some things. Um, We look at different people, and when the consensus is that this is probably what happened, we kind of go with that. We go, yeah, that's what everyone has said. But again, we're acting off information that we have currently. Um, That changes over time, right? I mean, at one point, people thought the world was flat, (laughs) today people do. But at one point, we thought the world was flat, and then given new information and new revelation, we realize, oh, okay, well, it's not flat. It's actually round, and we know some more things about it. So, you know, we stand here with sort of this limited perspective, and so we kind of just look and go, okay, this is the consensus. This is what most people think, and um, okay, so that's probably a good bet, but that doesn't mean somebody's right or somebody's wrong. It just means, like, this is what people are, are going down the road to. So, Yeah, you'll see that's not really an answer, right? It's more just kind of a response to the question. So that's kind of how we hold it. Which is actually going to frame a little bit of our conversation this morning, and I want to talk specifically out of Acts chapter one, this opening scene in Acts chapter one. Um, and so let me just get into it. We'll just kind of talk a little bit about some background stuff before we jump into Acts, because I don't want to assume everybody is up to speed and knows what's going on in this old ancient text. Um, but uh, in Acts we have this this two part series that this author by the name of Luke is writing. He's already written part one, which is his Gospel of Luke, and he tells about the accounts of Jesus and what Jesus has done when he was here on earth. And so he continues um, his, his, his volume work um, in Acts. And so it's meant to be read that way. Luke and Acts are meant to be read together. And you'll notice that when you look at the last couple chapters of Acts, you'll kind of see an overlay. There's an overlap between the first chapters of Acts and the last of Luke. They kind of overlap. And that's, that's what good writers do, right? They sort of hyperlink um, the last chapter to the next chapter to, to kind of catch you up to speed. And so the genre for this is uh, not just names, Narrative, it's theologically narrative in that it is telling us and revealing to us a little bit about who God is. So when you look at Acts, you keep that lens in front of you that this story is here to show us what God is like. Conversely, it's dealing with humans, it's dealing with people. And so the Bible is wonderful at holding up a mirror to our humanity and showing us that we're very much alike, that we, uh, we think alike, that we have a lot of the same tendencies and we are wired a lot of the same ways. And so even thousands of years ago, uh, as you'll see this morning, we still have a lot of the same hangups and holdups and thoughts about um, our kingdom and about our lives. And this is what we see from the, the book of Acts. So I'm gonna just jump right in. This is gonna be part two, right, of, of, of Luke. This is Acts, so you can look at it as part two. So it starts in this way. It says, Acts 1, in my first book, again, reference to, to Luke, I told you, Theophilus. Now, who's Theophilus? Um, most likely, again, how do we know what theologians, right? So the consensus is that Theophilus was a rich patron, somebody who had lots of money and resources, enough that they could actually offer it up to pay for Luke to write an account of the acts of the apostles, right? Uh, well, but there's the other side of it. So here's another side of it, right? So I give you one perspective. Here's another perspective. The name Theophilus actually means the lover of God. And so some theologians say that this actually could be representative of anybody or a collective community of people who want to follow Jesus, right? So Luke is writing to these these people or to Theophilus. He's given this account about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. So you see, right, that's, that's the hyperlink. He's like, remember the first chapter of the book I wrote? I told you about the things that Jesus did. And then he, then he ends his with, you know, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So he goes, now there's further instructions that's coming. Um, so he says, during the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. Now, this is interesting, right, because... Um, after his death, burial, and resurrection, he's with the disciples in some form. He's with them, they see him, they interact with him, and he's teaching them. Remember, Luke was talking about the acts of, God, acts of Jesus and what he was doing, the things that he was teaching. Now we're transitioning into this book of Acts where we're gonna see what the Holy Spirit, through Jesus' leading, teaches the disciples and how they live out this faith journey. So during the 40 days after, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And then he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Now, this is perhaps one of the most important aspects in all of the scriptures, is what is this kingdom of God? If you've read scripture or if you've sat in any messages or teaching, you've no doubt heard this idea of a kingdom of God. This is important. I'll just give you a brief kind of synopsis. Uh, these people understood kingdoms very, very, very clearly because of the culture and the time in which they, they live. And you know we have kingdoms today. we don't call them that. Um, we call them nations or whatever, but they become kingdoms and essentially what a kingdom is is where what you want done gets done, right? So you have your own mini kingdom, which is where the things that are in your possession, the things that you own, your own personal self, that's your kingdom. Well God also has a kingdom and this is what Jesus has been ushering in. Remember, Jesus' first words in Matthew chapter 5, when he starts his, his ministry, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What he's saying is, there's a new way of living. So think differently about the way you live your life, because I present something new to you. That's, that's essentially what he's saying in a nutshell. There's a new way of thinking about life. So in, in verse 4. Once, when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. Again, hyperlinking. You remember the story. You know, they would have understood. Remember the story. I told you that something was coming, that a spirit was coming for you. John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, when the apostles were with Jesus... They kept asking him. They just had a class, 40-day class, right? Teaching about all these things that are coming. And then they sat with him and here's their question. Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Now, Keep in mind, Luke is writing this decades after the events have happened, okay? It's important to know that this isn't happening in real time, that as Luke is writing down and reflecting, he's giving an account. He's thinking backwards. And so you think about the way that you look at life and the trajectory of things, right? You can think back and go, yeah, I remember I had this thought about something, and then now, you know, 10 years later, I realized I was wrong, and I didn't, I didn't understand it. And so Luke is trying to show his readers there was this, this preoccupation about Israel, the nation, um, now, they weren't, fault, they weren't at fault for thinking this because this is, goes back to prophetic language. In Isaiah, there's lots of language about Israel becoming this light to the world. Um, and so they were constantly being uh, conquered and pushed out in exile and then brought back. You'll remember this happens over and over again to uh, Israel as a nation. And now they're at a place where they're under Roman occupation and their, their religious system is not the way they want it to be. It's not the way they believe the kingdom should be. And so they keep asking, okay, you're the king. You know, you've risen again, you're the king. So when is when is the nation of Israel going to come back? And this is something that Luke talks about over and over again. You remember on the road to Emmaus, there's some people walking, and Jesus appears to them, and they don't know it's Jesus, and he, and, and they're like bummed out. And Jesus is like, "Why are you bummed out?" And they're like, "Well, because you know, the King, he he, he died and rose again, and he said he was gonna he's gonna liberate Israel from from Rome, and it hasn't happened yet, and they missed that it was actually Jesus there, and it wasn't the way that they they understood it." They understood the nation to be this nationalistic um, uh, political kingdom. And Jesus was bringing something different, something more subversive. And so in verse seven, he replied, the father alone has authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. Typical Jesus answer, right? You ask a straightforward question, you get a sort of a non-answer, a kind of a, a dodge a little bit. The Father alone has the authority set so dates and times and they're not for you to know, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That last little part, Jerusalem, uh, Judea, and Sumeria to the ends of the earth is sort of um, uh, Luke's way of telling you what the order of the story is going to go. That you're going to see this movement of people uh, travel from this one location out. And so uh, this story, again, is not only what uh, God is like, but it's also what we are like. And this disciples who wanted certainty who wanted to know when the kingdom was going to come. I need to know. I have to have answers. Is this going to happen yet? Is it going to happen now? They wanted certainty because certainty comes with a level of safety and security, right? And then so what Jesus gives them is not certainty. He gives them clarity. It's a subtle, nuanced difference, but it's important that you catch on to it. Instead of giving them certainty, he gives them clarity. So that's what we're going to kind of talk about this morning. So um, several years ago... Uh, my life took some pretty dramatic uh, turns, and I've shared a little bit of my story and my wife's journey uh, in that, but uh, long story short, I, I've been in ministry for almost 13, 14 years and in primarily uh, in megachurch settings and uh, had a specific tradition that I was brought up in in a way of understanding scripture and text and the faith and everything was a certain particular way. Um, and then all of a sudden, something entered into our marriage and into our life that, that literally catapulted us into a, a, new, a new world, a new way of thinking, a new paradigm. And uh, it was scary. It was terrifying because everything that I was so certain of was rocked. You know, my marriage, you know, it's like you're a pastor at a church, your marriage is supposed to be everything, right? Like you gotta keep your marriage together and this is a symbol of God and the church and if you can't keep it together, then oh my gosh. You know, all of that stuff was disrupted. My profession, my calling, whatever that means, I don't know what that means, but people say that a lot in ministry, your calling, right? And, and that got like, what, what, what am I supposed to do now with this? This thing, it's like the world doesn't operate the way that I assumed that it did. My faith, my belief system. I mean, try working on a church and not really believing if God even exists. That's a fun one, right? You're having to toe the line about these things and you're like, I don't even know if I'm even sure of any of this stuff. That's a difficult journey to be on while you're working and you're tied to it monetarily, right? You've you've got to do something here. And so that was a tough journey for us. My, My purpose, what am I here to do? I'm a teacher. Okay, well, what does that mean? What am I supposed to be doing? What am I even teaching? Is what do I believe what I'm teaching? Certainty can become a dangerous thing in a person's life because what it does is it slowly removes any and all mystery and, quite frankly, faith from the picture. See, the tradition here uh, in scripture that we see it was built on mystery. And faith. and faith is not just this word of, like, blind belief system. This it, actually it comes from this word, this idea of trust. Like, I can't really know, but I'm going to trust. And, and see, if you start to find certainty in everything that you do, you erode that trust because you're not really trusting anymore because you've, you've kind of got it all figured out. You know, certainty um, becomes a dangerous thing when you can get God down to five simple points. Because then you have to ask yourself, do you really have God at all? If you have a God that you can control, a God that you can really lay out and mark and go, this is what he's like, do you really then have God at all? Certainty then becomes a way of sort of controlling God and controlling your life and maybe even controlling others. Certainty, it leads me to believe that I can control and predict what happens, right? For those of us who are parents, How brutal of a realization is that, right? That you think that you can control everything and life just goes, ha, you can't control anything. It scares me when I don't feel certain about something that I believe. Because, gosh, I have to have proof because I have to be right. Because I've put my foundation on this, right? I'm putting my trust in this understanding of the way that things work. You see how the the trust moves from the understanding of the way things work versus going, okay, this is much bigger than I can really fully grasp. And so certainty has a danger to it. Let's look at the disciples now. As we're looking at this book of Acts, let's look at them to gain a better picture uh, into what we are like. Because they act in some ways the same way that we do. And we reflect a little bit of the way that they, they act. And so remember. Um, our tradition stems from this group of people, this disenfranchised, suspect, messianic group of Jews who were drinking the Kool-Aid of this Jesus guy. There were lots of different sects of, of, of religion in this time, right? So you've got these ascetics, people who went into the desert and literally gave up everything. They, they didn't, they didn't want to spend time with money or clothes or any of this other stuff that people they thought was frivolous, and so they lived out in the desert, and they tried to remain pure. You remember John the Baptist. John the Baptist was an ascetic. So there were lots of different sects of different people who believed different things, and Jesus was another one of those people because it sort of deviated a little bit from the norm of the day. And so this is this disenfranchised suspect group of people who are gathered together in this room, drinking the Jesus Kool-Aid. And so they've experienced hundreds of years of being forced out in exile over and over and over again the stories have been handed down to them through generations that this is what this is the history of your nation that you know once we were enslaved in Egypt and that's why we celebrate passover and then the babylonians came and then the assyrians came and then we were you know pushed out and then our temple was destroyed and then our temple was rebuilt and so they've constantly had this voice from the past, reminding them of sort of their future, where they're going. And so they have this expectation about what it should look like. And so in this story, they're under Roman government oppression. They're not free to practice their national religion. They're not free to be the nation that they believed that they were called to be. Rome was sort of the thing in the way. Now, obviously, there were the purists, and then there was the other ones who were in cahoots with Rome. Uh, but for the purists, they were like, this isn't what we want, And so the central aspect of this Jewish hope was this restoration of Israel. So they're not at fault for asking the question. When you read the story in Acts and they sit with Jesus, and I know I made light of it, that they had this class, and then the first thing they asked Jesus is, they're not at fault for asking that. That sort of was their expectation, but Jesus is constantly reminding them through his actions, through his words, through his deeds. Listen, this isn't the kingdom that you think it's going to be. It's not going to look that way. But they kept wanting the restoration of Israel. They wanted to bring the exiles back. They wanted to restore the house of David. They wanted to restore the temple because this was their place of worship. So it was a very, very important thing for them. So it says this in verse six. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking, Lord, when is the time coming for you to free Israel and restore the kingdom? So you see the preoccupation with certainty. We need to know. We need to know when this is happening. We can spend our lives trying to secure our own kingdoms, right? Look at, look at today. Just look at the culture today. Like we, we can spend endless amounts of money and time and energy trying to secure and be certain about our kingdoms, the things in which we have control of. What we want to get done gets done, right? We can build your empire. You can conquer everything that stands in your way. This is sort of the culture we live in, and this is the culture that they lived in. So we're not so different, even separated by several thousands of years. They understood kingdoms. They understood this. And so this is what they're asking. And so we have to ask some questions about that. <clears throat> if you can control your kingdom, and then you can be certain about the foundations that you stand on, what happens? What happens to your trust? What happens to the bigger narrative, the picture that Jesus was talking to them about? You remember there were some religious people called Pharisees, and Jesus had been teaching about this kingdom of heaven that was coming, that was at hand, and the word at hand means is here. So he's saying the kingdom of heaven is here. And they go, where is it? Where's this kingdom? What are you talking about? And he's like, you're looking at it. And he he sort of like makes a joke to them. He's like, it's not behind the tree. It's not under the rock. No, it's right here in front of you. You're seeing it right now. And what he was referencing was, look at the things I'm doing. Look at the way the power structure I've usurped. I taught a whole message in the Sermon on the Mount where I showed you that the kingdom was upside down, not the way that you thought of it. Where it's the people who are marginalized, the people who are poor, the people who are pushed aside, those are the ones who have power in the kingdom of God. Those are the ones who find the kingdom of God. So it was this this paradigm shift for many people that they didn't understand. Today, we find certainty in lots of things, right? We find certainty about our kids. Um, I don't know if you've heard the the phrase helicopter, parents. You familiar with this? Helicopter parents comes from this idea that you sort of hover over your kids constantly and and you're always watching over everything that they do. Um, It became so much of a problem. I remember this was like a few years ago. Helicopter kids, helicopter parents became so much of a problem that school admissions offices had to stop, start banning parents from coming to their, their admissions processes. It's crazy, right? Cuz you know, here's an 18, 19-year-old student that a parent has to do everything for. And it's like, whoa, this is crazy. Now there's a new term. Have you heard of this one? The snowplow parent. Familiar with this? The snowplow parent. The snowplow parent is the one who goes before their kids and removes all the obstacles from in their way. So they don't ever have to experience tough things, right? And and really what that boils down to is certainty, right? I have to have control. I want to make sure that my kids, and I I understand where it comes from. It's not a bad place. You want the best for your kids. I get that. But it can be dangerous because it robs children of the ability to learn and to experience life. Certainty about health, right? There's a huge industry built and geared towards helping us live longer, which is really funny when you think about it, right? Right? How can you really make yourself live longer? I mean, no one knows when you're going to die or how long you're going to live. Now, I'm not saying that the health industry is bad, and I'm, I'm all for being healthy. I think that's an important thing. We should take care of ourselves because we're image bearers, right? Um, and so there's, a, there's an obligation to take care of ourselves. But it can get crazy when we become preoccupied with it. Because what happens when something out of your control enters into your healthy lifestyle? What then? If control and certainty is built around the things that you can do and control and that goes away, like let's say cancer, well then what, what happens? Now your assumptions are being challenged. Now your faith is being challenged. Now you're having to ask some deeper questions about what you fundamentally believe. Certainty about faith is another one and this one is a scary one. To have certainty around what you believe to build assumptions around the things that you hold as right and wrong. Because, you know, what's crazy about right and wrong is if you're right, then you're inevitably saying that everybody else is wrong, and then that elevates you and puts you in a dangerous position, which is dangerous. You see, certainty has this thing about it, has this dark side that causes us to lose perspective. And certainty will always betray you at some point. Because the reality of life has a way of showing up and ruining the party. You think you have everything in control. You think you have it all figured out. You think that your set of assumptions and your rules and the way that things work is how it works until something happens in life and then it challenges all of that. And these are important parts for our journey. Some of us will run away from them. Some of us will will bury them deep. Some of us will will double down in our beliefs. This is another thing, right? Um, Some people will just double down in their belief system, and they'll make excuses and explanations about things to try to cover up um, this thing because it's scary, and I don't fault anybody for that because I know what that's like. It's a scary thing. Pete Enns um, has this uh, to say about certainty, and this is super poignant, so I'm going to read this slow so we hear this together. These are key moments of growth because we tend to create a mental fortress that keeps us in the safe religious space. Think about that. These moments that challenge our faith and our assumptions are important for growth because otherwise we find ourselves in this mental fortress that protects us from reality. It is upsetting to have to redraw our maps and change what we see as the anchor of our security. And if left to ourselves, we would never go there. So we build walls to prevent that from happening. Walls within which we preserve what makes us feel secure. Where we are in control and God makes perfect sense to us. See, that's a a dangerous place. Dangerous place to be. You know, it's, you look at church history um, and you can see like some of the desert fathers who had this, this, this incredible view of God and the mystery and the beauty behind not really understanding all of who he was, but you know, it was like, it was this thing that you could just involve your whole life into. And then these reformations sort of came about, right? And then these reformations sort of pulled mystery away from it and just said sort of this is what it is, this is how you believe it, and here's the five points to get us there. And we've sort of carried that on throughout history and and there's a danger there. And it's scary because watching certainty slide into uncertainty is frightening. And anybody in this community who's gone through deconstruction will tell you that. It's terrifying. And for me, um, I always get a little nervous around people who are so certain. People who are so certain about everything, I get a little nervous because, man, I, as I've gotten older, I'm almost 40 now, and as I've gotten older, I, I just go like, I, what I thought I knew, I really don't know anything, right? There's this um, philosopher, I forgot his name, but um, he talked about how uh, when students come into college, their assumption is when they get into the classroom that they're going to learn from the teacher who knows everything, that the one who knows everything, the oracle is going to teach us. But the funny thing is, is the person who knows everything in that room is the student, right? The students are the ones who think they know everything, and the professor, the one who they think knows everything, actually goes, I don't really know anything, That's the irony of that, right? Because the more you study, the more you learn, the more you dive into these things, the bigger, the grander, the more magnanimous that it gets. And that's a beautiful thing if you can let it be that. Instead of certainty for this this group, this disenfranchised, messianic group of Kool-Aid-drinking Jesus followers, instead of giving them certainty, he offers them something different. The father, he goes this, he says this, the Father alone has the authority to set the dates and the times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem uh, and throughout Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This this begs a couple of questions from us that we have to look into. The first one is, what does Holy Spirit mean? Um, Who is this, right? And so they knew because Luke had been telling them through the story. Um, Luke, the way that he uh, writes his his gospel, he talks about the Holy Spirit's guiding and leading constantly. And so here he's referencing again that there's going to be a helper in all times, in all seasons that will be with you. And then he says, you will be my witness to the world And so this is sort of the clarity, right? The certainty was when is the kingdom coming and then the clarity that Jesus says is, no, you're gonna be my witnesses to the world. Now, the tradition that I grew up in, when you say the word witness, that was always like you evangelizing people. So we're gonna go witness. We would do this, okay? Like we would go to like malls and places where people would gather and we were gonna go witness to them about who Jesus was. Anybody raised in a tradition like that, right? We're gonna go door to door. We're gonna witness to people, right? And what that meant, what that really like boiled down to was you're right about everything and these people don't know anything and you need to educate them and tell them why they're wrong. That's what witness, and I didn't know it at the time, but that's subtly what that's actually saying, right? We have the answer. You don't have the answer. You need to come and listen to me. Now, what's interesting is when you look at this word, the word is martus. It's where we get the word martyr from, right? This word does not mean what we think it means. It actually means that you will testify to the beauty of Jesus' kingdom, That doesn't mean that you go and do it by words, necessarily. It means that whenever love and mercy and grace and generosity overcome the social construct that we're in that says that power and conquering and dominating and getting what you want is the thing, whenever that kingdom is subverted and Jesus is is elevated, that is testifying to the kingdom of God. It's why we as a community work towards these things because we want to testify. We want to showcase to the world what the kingdom of God is like. It isn't about me telling you you're wrong. When Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he didn't say, repent because you're all wrong and I'm right. He said, no, turn your understanding and the way that you look at the world and think differently now in light of me. There's a new way to rule in this world. There's a new way to live in this world. God's kingdom reflects the right side of our broken world. What do I mean by that? In our world where the powerful are the ones who rule, in God's kingdom, it is the meek who inherit the earth. For those who are conquerors, we adore them. But in the kingdom of God, it's the peacemakers who are the sons and daughters of the kingdom of God. It's the poor in spirit. It's those who literally look at themselves and they go, they have nothing. These are the ones who inherit the kingdom of God. This is the subversive nature of the gospel message that Jesus gives. And when we represent and when we stand with the poor and the marginalized and the weak, when we as a community and individuals give generously to help others, when we show radical and scandalous grace to those who don't deserve it, we then become a community that testifies to the kingdom of God. That's what it means to witness. You don't have to tell anybody who's right or wrong when you're testifying about the goodness and the beauty of Jesus' kingdom. People see it. They go, what is this thing? Why would you do that? Why would you travel halfway across the world to go help people in another country when you don't have anything to gain from it? Why would you give sacrificially and generously from your income to help see other people grow? Why would you you do that? And this isn't just humanism. This isn't just because it's the right thing to do. No, it's because it shows the beauty of who Jesus is. It invites us into something much bigger than our own kingdoms because that's really what it was for them when is our little kingdom going to finally be established? That's what they were asking. When is this little tiny kingdom that we talked about, that we'd heard about from our ancestors, when is this kingdom going to get established? And what Jesus is going is, guys, guys, it's much bigger than that. There's something that's going to be, it's going to way outshine this little tiny mini kingdom that you're talking about. I've got something much bigger. It's a world that we can offer into a broken and dark place to say there's another way. There's another way of living this thing out. And that clarity, paradoxically, gives us peace in the midst of certainty. Because see, we can get so wound up in our kingdoms and building our kingdoms and controlling, and then what Jesus reminds us is, is, listen, you don't get certainty. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't have control over the next day or the next minute. But what you can do What you must do is testify to the beauty of this kingdom. That is the the right side of an upside down world. And who wouldn't want to be a part of that, right? We're a part of that. This is the tradition that we stand on, this is what was given to us. And so we get to live that out. It's confusing at times, it's hard, it's difficult, it's frustrating, it doesn't always make sense, but we hold it loosely. Trusting, in trust, that this is much bigger than us. It's much bigger than our small, little, mini kingdoms. We don't get certainty. We get clarity. And clarity brings peace. God, we thank you for today. Thank you for this morning. Um, Pray that uh, we would be the type of community that could testify to the beauty of your kingdom that we could stand with others who are broken, that we can put aside our own assumptions, our own prejudice, our own need to be right, and we can stand with others to be empathetic, to be compassionate, to be loving, to be merciful, to maybe even just be quiet. Gosh, give us that power. You promised it. Your Holy Spirit is here. And while we don't fully understand it, we embrace that mystery. We embrace the unknown We embraced the way that you uh, work in lives beyond our understanding. So God, we look to you um, as we move from this place today that this isn't become about a building or a gathering together um, just for our own self, but that this is so that we can go and testify to the world around us. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so a couple of quick things before you leave. It's a big month, so a couple of things you need to know about. Next weekend is April 14th, that is Palm Sunday, um, also Game of Thrones. You can't watch that show. Anyway, so uh, th- that Palm Sunday, we are our friends from Jews for Jesus, Josh you Remember, he was here. Uh, he's working on getting someone here for us who's going to walk to the elements of Passover, talk about its Jewish context. What does it mean for them? What does it mean for us? How do we integrate those things? And then afterwards, we would normally have our spiritual uh, uh, formations workshop, but instead we're going to do a Q&A with him. So if you have any questions about Jewish culture, history, or that, you can ask the questions, and he's going to spend some time with us um, just kind of intimately answering any of those questions you you might have so. Mark that on your calendar. Also, uh, Good Friday, that's the 19th, Uh, that will be at Fieldwork. For those of you who are not familiar with that, it's in downtown Fullerton on Wilshire and Harbor. Uh, It's where we have our Vox PMs. So if you've been to that, you know exactly where it's at. Um, So make sure you come to that. And then also Easter services will be here normal at 10 o'clock and then the following weekend, the 20th is Vox PM. So if you haven't been to Vox PM, we'd love for you to come. We just gather around a meal. We play some competitive games of Kahoot and people get crazy. Um, I think of a few people, in my mind right now. Uh, but yeah, we want to invite you to come. That's, you can bring friends and family to it. It's a great introduction to what this community is about. So with that, um, this community functions on the generosity of you financially. So if you would like to contribute and be a part of that and help, then you can do that with the offering boxes that are here or outside, or you can do it online. If that's easier for you, um, you can do it that way as well. But this week, go and be uh, a testify as a witness to the beauty and the love of the kingdom of God. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.